Gig Life Pro basically allows me to help more people in the music industry, including my Orchard clients, have a better grasp and better control over how they grow their audience and grow their business in Asia. Hey guys, welcome to How Music Charts, where we pull back the curtain on today's music business, exploring music industry trends, music data, and the creativity that helps your favorite artists hit the charts. I'm your co-host Rutger, and you'll hear from our other co-host Jason very soon. This podcast is owned and operated by Chartmetric, a music data company that connects numbers to narratives to help the music industry leverage the power of data analytics. Today, we'll be talking to Priya Duan. Priya is an Indian citizen born in the Philippines, raised in Singapore, and educated in American schools. Just four years after graduating from Boston University, Priya worked her way up from intern to label manager at Warp Records, where she ran the show for another four years. As soon as she left Warp in 2011, she moved back to Singapore and started her own booking agency and artist consultancy called Feedback Asia, where she worked directly with talent like Churches, Beach House, Yuna, Bicep, Mansionaire, and Lauv to help them find live opportunities in Asia. Currently, Priya is both vice president and also CEO of two different companies. As VP of South Korea and Southeast Asia at The Orchard, she manages teams all across Asia, but somehow she still also manages to find time to run her own company, Gig Life Pro, a music industry networking and community resource consultancy for the Asia Pacific region. Suffice it to say, Priya knows the music markets in Asia inside and out not to mention the qualities it takes to be a leader in the music industry, no matter what market you're in. So, without further ado, please welcome to the How Music Charts podcast, Priya Dewan. How's it going, Priya? Good, thanks. How are you? Lovely, lovely. Good evening for you, I imagine. Thanks. Yeah, it's 11. <laughs> well, thanks for joining us so late. Yeah, my pleasure. Sorry about my... Uh minor technical difficulties. Oh, no, it's all good. So I, I wanted to sort of start with some personal or career-oriented stuff. Um, so I was reading an interview that you did with Bro 24-7 Malaysia, and you say that your brother said something to you when you were younger, and you've carried it with you to this day. And he said, you can't manage what you don't measure. And I think... That's important to us, especially being a data analytics company, obviously. But can you explain how you've applied that wisdom to your professional life, going from intern to head of Warp Records in the U.S., and then VP at the Orchard to founding your own companies? That's actually a mantra that I, I still live by. I have a printout of it on my desk in my office. Uh, I, I really love that phrase. Um, so... It's basically applicable to any aspect of your life where if you're trying to improve on something, whether it's trying to learn a new skill or trying to improve on, on existing skills or get more fit or whatever, it's really impossible to accomplish any of that if you don't know where you are at day one and if you have no way of tracking your progress. How do you know if you're, if you're getting closer towards your goals or, or learning more? So. When I was office manager, one of the things I started to take on was the college radio marketing. So, you know, I looked at that and said, okay, well, how do I get good at college radio marketing? Well, for starters, I need to learn about all of the college radio stations across the country. And then I need to identify which of those are most influential. And then I need to track 
how well we are performing at those stations. And the same way with how I approached retail sales, same thing, like how many stores are there, which are the most influential stores. And basically from that, you build expertise because you've identified what it is that you're trying to be good at and then tracking your progress in that. Um, And the same thing, I guess, like when I first started working for The Orchard here was looking at first, how many labels do we represent currently? What are the key labels out here? What are the key platforms out here? Um, How am I going to systematically reach out to and develop relationships with all of these people? And how do I track that? Like, how do I track all the people that I'm meeting and those relationships and and those? and, And to be honest, today, what I love about today is that there's so many tools to help you measure and manage everything, right? Even like how many people you're meeting, you've got like, I use high rise now, right? To track my network and, and track my engagements and things like that. So yeah, that, that phrase has helped me throughout my career. And I feel like in today's day and age, it's, it's easier than ever to do. And so in another interview with Australian nonprofit, one of one, you offer advice to anyone wanting to start a career, especially in the music industry. But obviously it's applicable across many industries. And that's look for a gap in the market that you can fill. So I know there's no way to like teach this sort of thing or to give a sort of formula, but can you explain some of the unique strategies or perspectives that helped you find a need to fill and some of the challenges you faced doing so? Yeah, sure. I mean, the first moment of that that I had in my in my career that was like really impactful was sort of by accident. I was home, Singapore, visiting my parents uh, while I was living in New York and, and running Warp. Um, and I timed my trip for the first ever laneway music festival in Singapore. So that was like January of 2011. And a couple of my friends were actually performing at the festival, which I thought was really cool. And and Battles, who I worked with, and and Beach House, who I was friends with. And I came down and it was an amazing, amazing event. And I was so impressed by how many people in this part of the world enjoyed the kind of music that I was working in. And so I started to investigate this more and I was like, wow, how are artists like this touring in Asia? And what I found out was that it was all being done predominantly out of the UK or, you know, in some cases out of the US and in in rare cases, like out of Australia. And I thought, you know, why is there nobody in Asia representing artists for touring in Asia? So that was the gap that I saw and I wanted to come and fill. So from there, I started talking to more and more of my my artist friends who had played in the region and I found out how they were doing it, what some of the pros and cons were, and basically took that data and that initial network to move back to Singapore and, and set up Feedback Asia, which is my my touring agency. Another example, again, is like, you know, when I was approached by, by The Orchard to relaunch them in Asia, um, almost like less than a year actually after I moved back, I took the same sort of approach of, okay, well, what are the services being provided here by our competitors? Like, what are they doing in the market? 
how can we position ourselves like a little bit differently than what's currently being offered? And the same thing with Gig Life Pro was, you know, in, in the US, I really miss like, I mean, I was on the board of the American Association of Independent Music before I left New York. And one of the things I really missed about New York was how often we had industry gatherings, like be it informal even, like cocktails, happy hours, um, just a lot more community within the industry. And I felt like that was really missing um, on a local and, and especially regional level in Asia. And that's what Gig Life Pro is, is trying to fill. That's the gap that's trying to fill. So in that same interview, you talk a little bit about gender dynamics in the workplace. And you say the greatest adversity you received in your career is from a few females you worked with in the U.S. So feel free to expand on, upon that situation if you're comfortable doing so. Totally fine if not. But I think the important things I wanted to draw out of that is if and how you, you've used that experience to shape your vision with your own businesses and whether that factored at all into your decision to move back to Singapore from the United States. It's interesting that you asked that because it's kind of like something it's, that's very current. It's a very current topic as well. And um, I've been thinking a little bit more about that. And to be honest, in hindsight, I feel like it was more of an age discrimination than necessarily a gender discrimination. Um, I was 27 when I was label manager of Warp and negotiating distribution deals and um, meeting with other, you know, major radio promo guys and, and things like that. Um, I did have a couple of experiences about you know, that I was referring to in that article where I had a couple of women who I felt like were really encouraging me along my journey. And then once I got that promotion, kind of had a completely different attitude towards me. Mm. Um, but in hindsight, so did many of the men that, that I was working with is, you know, as soon as, which is a ridiculous question, but people would say, you know, when I walk in the room, they'd be like, oh, how old are you? <laughs> and I really, I was like, can I just say that I'm like 30? You know, like, <laughs> um, such a weird dilemma. Um, but you could see like their, their face would just kind of like drop when you mm. say that you're 27. You know, and it was like, oh, okay. I'm like, yeah, the same 27-year-old that has been speaking to you on the phone and emailing with you and has gotten this far in these conversations that we should really progress without this being an issue, right? Um, and to that, you know, it definitely, I think, shaped, shaped me to feel the need to, like, prove myself that much more. I don't actually think that it affected me. It's interesting because I moved back to Singapore when I was 30. So I'd been waiting for forever to turn 30 in the US. And finally, when I did, I moved halfway around the world, where actually, like, not very many people asked me my age, mm. ironically. <laughs> like, just a really quick, I mean, we could totally cut this out, but I just find it really fascinating, like this this conversation about age, because I feel like there's such an interesting difference between how, at least in America, we think about age versus how we think about age in Asia. Um, you know, I have a lot of family in the Philippines and um, age is a very much a respect thing. Um, and I'm pretty sure yeah. that's true throughout a lot of 
Eastern and Southeastern Asian countries. And, um, you know, you put respect to where respects do. And age in the U.S. is many times um, something that, you know, one tries to hide. You know, experience is something like some, which is ridiculous to me, but that's just me. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I don't know if you have any kind of interesting kind of thoughts about that. I'm sure you've thought about that a lot. Yeah. I mean, I think the other thing is like everybody in Asia looks so much younger. You know, So like nobody is like questioning like how old you are when you look in the room and walk in the room. And like at 27, admittedly, I did look like more like 23, probably. So. <laughs> Um, I think there's a little bit of that. Um, yeah, I think ultimately it is really down to your experience and it's more like an Asia down to your title. Mm. Right. So I feel like if you are a label manager or a VP or whatever, and you walk in there with confidence, nobody's like asking to check your ID or asking you even the question of how old you are. So you have such an interesting background, uh, both professionally and, and personally between the U.S. and also the uh, Asian market. So we're going to ask you the impossible, uh, but <laughs> is there a way you can kind of, because uh, you're so well positioned, I think, to, to let, because most of our listeners are, are from you know the States and, and Western Europe, describe at a very kind of broad and high level, you know, can you talk to us a little bit about the different kind of peculiarities about the Korean market, Japanese market, Filipino, Chinese, Vietnamese um, and any other kind of South or Southeast Asian markets that um, you feel like you could maybe pull out maybe a, a neat little inside or something to kind of take home for a lot of our listeners who maybe know nothing uh, about the other side of the ocean? Yeah, sure. I can do a, a few key highlights, uh, interesting points. So um, starting with Korea, uh, Korea is a market that is very heavily dominated by local music platforms. Um, they have a lot of 360 deals. So the labels or the management companies or the agents are uh, publishing and everything else. Um, and it's a market where physical is actually on the rise year on year. So they are selling thanks to K-pop a lot, a lot of physical product there. Um, Japan is uh, also a very insular market that uses a lot of their own local platforms. Physical is dominant there, which is very unique in the world. So uh, if you really want to move the needle in Japan, you really need to have a physical product in the market. And there are no third-party label services companies that you can hire. So unlike in the U.S. and Europe where you can hire a PR company or radio plugger or things like that, um, those services actually don't exist outside of label or licensee companies. Um, China is another very, very unique market. Um, I think people are probably most familiar with it uh, in the fact that most of the global platforms outside of Apple are banned. Um, including social media platforms like Facebook and Instagram, but they have their own very, very popular world of platforms that they use, like Billy Billy, which is their form of uh, YouTube, um, QQ Music, uh, Kugo Kuo. Uh, these are all top streaming platforms. Um, and the reality shows right now in China are what are really driving the music markets there. 
uh, like singing competitions and rap competitions and, and things like that. Um, and Southeast Asia, I mean, Southeast Asia, people refer to it as this block, but it's actually made up of several very, very unique music markets, all at various levels of uh, infrastructure development. So like Philippines, for example, is a very old music market. So they have a lot of great societies and um, institutions and even Mint, which is a great music school that churns out uh, a lot of great young talent for the music industry versus like Vietnam, that's a much younger music market where copyright is a fairly new concept. Um, and they're just kind of building up and, and figuring out the infrastructure of, of monetizing music in that market. Um, the one thing I can say that uh, all of Southeast Asia has in common, though, is that uh, we are incredibly social. Like, social media is what we are good at. That is how we do everything, you know, in a lot of markets across Southeast Asia. That is just how you live your life. That is how you order your food. That is how um, you share everything, including the music that you listen to with your friends and family. Um, so uh, can we get into uh, some some artists that you've worked with, you know, in this in this market? So uh, yeah. Love is a prime example, of course, uh, the American singer songwriter and um, has been widely successful uh, in a lot of ways. Can you first tell us a little bit about the role you, you played into his introduction to the Southeast Asian market? Yeah, so that was an interesting one. Actually, um, his manager, Steve, reached out to me to see if I would essentially consult for them um, and advise on how he could make the most, the greatest impact of his tour with Ed Sheeran that was coming up across Asia. And I thought it was a really interesting project to be, to be a part of. So essentially what I did with him, and this was, um, this was under feedback, Asia, my company then, and, uh, I basically looked at each market and advised him on the top platforms that he needed to make sure that Lob's content was available on. For example, you know, he's doing a show in Korea. You really need to make sure that your content is available on Melon. Um, and on top of that, connected him with uh, representatives from the streaming platforms, as well as created other fan opportunities. So we worked with Spotify to do a fan first event for him in the Philippines um, and in Singapore, which is essentially, they ran competitions through the platform where in the Philippines, I think it was 20 lucky fans got to have lunch with him. Um, and then in Singapore, we did like a riverboat tour, a boat tour with some fans. Yeah. And he did like a little meet and greet there as well. Um, so it was that sort of advice. That, that I gave to them. And, and that's sort of how I helped them with their initial engagements with their fans on his first tour of Asia. So did, did that come as an after effect of unexpected streaming interest from that region? Or was it like the other way around? So, you know, that part I'm not entirely certain about, but my hunch is the other way around. I mean, on on one hand, there had to be something, right, that like, he would get this opportunity to support Ed Sheeran, but that could also just be an artistic choice that Ed Sheeran made of like taking, you know, a young budding artist on tour with him. 
But I definitely feel the activations that we did during that period definitely tipped off his streaming activity afterwards. It had to have, right? Like when you're actively promoting yourself in a market like that with all of the right things in place, like great music and great performance, great visibility, opening in, you know, basically arena tours to a fan base that's all going to be there for the opening artists because they're just so excited to see, to see the headliner. Um, and then your own special like media and fan looks around that. So we also actually helped him with um, a few key media plays like in Singapore with like bandwagon interview. We set up an MTV Asia interview for him um, and a few other media looks like that. And to be honest, even it seems like a small amount of things to do, like a handful of interviews and, and a couple of meet and greets. But those kind of activities are so impactful in these markets. You're there, you're posting, look what I did, look what I saw, look yeah. who I had lunch with. Like, yeah. So going from someone as massively successful as Love, can you kind of shift focus a little bit to someone who's still emerging today? And so uh, let's just assume they're, you know, from somewhere in the States. You know, how, and maybe let's say they do see, uh, you know, some, a glimmer of, of, of activity, you know, maybe in like Quezon City or, or Jakarta or, you know, one of these cities that maybe they never even um, could point to on a map because they just weren't right. um, familiar with uh, that region of the world. How does one go about developing their audience base if you're kind of like seeing some stuff going on, but you don't really know what, to, what your first step is? Yeah. So I would say for starters, you know, like you mentioned, look at the data that you have in hand to identify what those markets are. I mean, for most people, though, the reality is Quezon City, Jakarta, probably Buenos Aires, you know, like Mexico City are likely to be in your top 10, no matter who you are, because those are just the top markets for Spotify and the volume of, of users there is very high. But that's so, you know, if you're seeing the same thing across all of your social profiles, be it in Asia or really anywhere, I feel like my advice would be similar. And that would be to learn more about that market, right? So learn more about how fans engage with music in that market. What platforms are they using? Are you on those platforms? Are you using those platforms? Who are the top artists in those markets? Who are people that you may want to reach out to for collaboration opportunities or other sort of sharing uh, cross-promotional opportunities? Um, and then track it from there, really, right? We have so many tools available to us now to really see the impact of our different marketing efforts. And you can basically do sort of a trial and error of that. But I'm very confident that you learn about how to reach your audience in a certain market and identify a few people that you can work with in those markets. You could actually move the needle. Now, let's switch directions. So. You know, you have a lot of experience uh, helping Asian artists also reach global audiences as well. So do the tactics stay the same? Uh, do the philosophies of how one goes about doing that uh, shift a little bit? There's such uh, a huge, you know, cultural difference as well and linguistic differences between kind of the West and the East. The reality is the world is becoming smaller and we're seeing a lot more opportunity for different cultures of music to cross borders, you can say, right? Um, but 
But the reality is at the end of the day, if you are able to communicate in a base language like English, even if your music and your content isn't necessarily fully in English, it's definitely easier, right? Um, there's definitely an easier opportunity. And something that I've been talking to a lot of uh, the artists that I work with, especially at the Orchard about is uh, adding subtitles, right? So uh, we're working with this great new young artist, Ween from Vietnam and just put out a single and we got it on some new Music Friday playlists and in other Asian markets. And I was talking to his manager and I, you know, it occurred to me and I was like, I actually don't even know how to pronounce the single. So if I don't know how to pronounce the single and I'm like actively looking for him, but I don't, you know, can't remember how to type it in either, then how are other people who are interested in this music going to know how to find it and track it? And so, you know, one thing we talked about is like localizing the track listing and, and uh, adding English subtitles to his YouTube lyric videos. And, you know, there's definitely things that we can do to make our content more easily accessible to a global audience. And, and the same thing, whether that's you sitting in Asia or in Europe or in Latin America and vice versa, right? Asia, uh, Western artists trying to break into the Asian market a lot of that, you'll see bands have been doing it, like in Indonesia, they'll be creating UGC videos on YouTube with translations, uh, in, like Bahasa translations of, of an English song. You need to find a way to get your audience to connect to what you're saying. And the best way to do that is if they understand what you're saying in some shape or form. Going back to that one-on-one -on -one of one interview that we mentioned before, you mentioned something, uh, and we'll quote here, uh, that Asian markets are facing several issues. The first seems to be an issue globally, the lack of medium-sized venues, 400 to 800 capacity for developing artists to perform at. Another issue is that due to the expense of bring in, bringing in international artists, shows tend to be quite pricey, limiting the number of shows a fan can attend uh, in a given month. So how do you kind of... First of all, like, you know, what are your thoughts on that kind of now? And then also in the light of the obvious COVID-19 pandemic, how, what kind of movements do you feel like uh, are kind of happening now in October 2020? So, I mean, the venue issue is definitely still an issue, if not more so of an issue, because we've definitely seen a lot of venues not survive, especially in the Philippines almost every one of the, the most beloved small live houses in Manila have shut down. I think there's only like two left. But on the flip side, Asia is the first to be recovering from this pandemic. You know, you've got markets like China where there's full-blown tours and festivals in Wuhan of like 15,000 people. Um, Taiwan, Eric Show had to four sold out arena, Taipei arena shows that, you know, full capacity that went on uh, without a glitch and without any sort of second wave in that market. Um, you're seeing these markets sort of open up more and, and live music, real live music becoming a reality in a lot of these places. Um, and we're also starting to see green channels open up within Asia right now for business travel, um, but you know, that's the great first step to, to what's next in terms of our ability to move around. Um, so I think 
the future of at least touring in Asia is going to be very local market driven. I think it's a great opportunity for local artists to get a stage. Even in Australia, for example, they're already curating like all Australian lineups in Japan. Um, they had a Magic Circus Festival in Osaka, which is the first large scale festival in Japan with a fully Japanese lineup. And they had a huge turnout, I think 75,000 people or something like that. Um, and then the next opportunity is for regional, right? Like uh, a Singaporean artists being able to perform in, in Taiwan, um, Vietnamese artists being able to, to perform in Singapore, you know, these sort of, or in Australia even. Um, I think APAC as a region will open up more quickly. And I feel like there's a lot of really great opportunities for Asian artists locally and regionally. Um, for Western artists, I feel like it's a great time to invest in this market, you know, where you may not have had time to uh, really focus on, on this part of the world because you're constantly touring and doing that constant cycle of release, US tour, Europe tour, Australia tour, um, and whatever scatterings of, of Asia you can do in between. Now there are tons of virtual ways to reach your audience and virtual streaming has become very popular, especially in markets like China. And I feel like it's a great, great opportunity to really focus on, on how to reach and grow your audiences for when the borders open up again and the infrastructure will be in place already for, for live shows in Asia. And we will be ready and welcome to, to get international artists back into the market and hopefully at a more affordable rate. Because to be honest, like pre-pandemic, the fees of international artists in Asia were starting to get out of control. So I'm hoping that on a flip side as well, is once international artists are able to come back to Asia, is that some of that fee management will happen and, and the promoters will bit of a break and the dy dynamic, I guess, between agents and promoters will have switched a little bit. Makes sense. And then... Are there any other, I guess, more general kind of like in the in the very near future, like how you see the Asian markets developing in terms of, you know, these same dynamics, Westerners trying to develop more fan base in, in Asia and the other way around? Westerners trying to develop a, a bigger fan base in Asia and the other way around. I mean, I feel like it's happening now. Everybody's setting up shop here. You know, you've got like spin up, you've got ADA just announced uh, a new hire for, for Asia. You've got all of these global companies setting up shop here, trying to do exactly those things. Be able to better promote global content in the region, as well as identify the next big sensation from Asia, right? And see what they can do. Like our ability to, to do both of those things is, is left to be seen because you know it's it's quite tricky to do to do both at the same time um but yeah like i i i feel very optimistic about the future of the asian music markets both as a asian markets bringing in and generating and growing revenue within asia as well as for the opportunities for asian artists abroad just based on the sheer interest um and investment that i'm seeing the global community is putting into these markets so a lot of people 
in the music industry tend to sort of stick to one sector. They stick to what they know. Um, but you've kind of done it all. So I'm wondering if you could give some insight into your experience working in each sector that you have worked in and why and how you diversified rather than just staying in one lane. Yeah, sure. I mean, I was a complete novice when I joined the music industry. I mean, I grew up in Singapore at a time um, pre-broadband, I guess, where uh, music sharing and file sharing was not really a thing. So I grew up really heavily influenced by British boy bands and, and uh, U.S. pop stars. And I honestly didn't even know that there was a music industry when I moved to the U.S., when I went to Boston for university. And by chance, met, met a friend who, who got me into it. Then I started at the radio station at BU as a DJ, started doing some events there, really got into, I think Boston is like such a great place to learn about independent music and the music industry and discover new genres of music. I worked at a Paradise Rock Club, which is a really famous venue on Commonwealth Avenue as a door person for a while. Um, I worked at labels. I just wanted to learn all about the industry. So I basically took any job that I could get. Um, even within Warp, you know, I started off as an office manager and then took on some uh, college radio campaigns. I was like, hey, you know, all of our electronic stuff seems to chart number one on RPM anyway on the CMJ charts. So what if we kind of brought this stuff in-house? Um, and I did it. And then I got really heavily involved with um, our sales conversations along with our distributor, which was Caroline at the time. And then I started helping out with budgets. Before I knew it, I was label manager because I basically acquired all of the skills, the various skills and, and the various knowledge bases across the label that I needed to, to have to do that job appropriately. When I moved back to Singapore to set up my booking agency, like that was a, just like a eureka moment. Like, wow, there's an opportunity here. Um, why are there no booking agents in, in Asia doing this stuff? So, you know, I had experience working with agents, you know, working with Windish, working with um, a variety of different agents who had become my friends over time. I had a lot of experience with approving tour budgets because of, you know, tour advances and, and supporting that sort of stuff from, from a label perspective. So I had an understanding of the economics of, of touring. And then the rest of it to me was networking, right? The, the missing piece was networking, which is uh, what I ended up doing, hit the ground running when I moved back to Singapore. From there, actually, I was approached by The Orchard once I was in Singapore because uh, Richard Gother, who is one of the founders of The Orchard, actually came to speak at Music Matters. And a friend of mine who is ex-Caroline was currently working for The Orchard and said, hey, my boss is coming to town for this conference. Can you take him out and uh, take him out for a meal? And that's really how I, I got the opportunity working for The Orchard. They wanted to basically relaunch their presence in the market and were trying to find a person who really understood their value proposition. And at Warp, 
I negotiated two distribution deals while I was the label manager. I did one in um, North America, one in the U.S. for between Red Eye and, and after we left Caroline, and I did another one in Canada. So I was really experienced with the distribution side of things. So that experience really helped me with the orchard side. Gig Life Asia was launched basically because every time I went to festivals or shows around the region, which is a lot, my friends would message me and say, hey, I wish I had known about this. I would have come. Or, hey, can we go with you? Where should we stay? What should we do? So it was basically like touring for fans was what I was trying to set up there. Gig Life Pro actually is the culmination of all of that. Gig Life Pro is all of the knowledge and all of the network from all of my experiences coming together in one place to connect with each other and find and build opportunities. Mm -hmm. So speaking of Gig Life Pro, can you explain the practical needs that Gig Life Pro fills and how you're able to measure, manage, and balance everything in order to fill those needs, especially since you are also <clears throat> VP at the Orchard and any adversity that you've come across in the process and how you've worked through that? Gig Life Pro is actually set up because I had so many friends in the music industry outside of Asia, especially in the beginning, who were coming to me to ask for my advice or to see if they could work for me, or maybe they already work with me for the orchard and they wanted to do more in these markets, right? So, you know, I tried to do a couple of consulting gigs, like for Love. Um, I also did one with Partisan for Cigarettes After Sex when, when they were coming out here to tour. And those are really great and impactful, but not really scalable, right? Um, because, as you mentioned, I have a full-time job as a VP of Southeast Asia and South Korea for The Orchard, and it's a job that I love, and, and it loves me back, and I want to spend, you know, a good amount of time doing it. So Gig Life Pro basically allows me to help more people in the music industry, including my Orchard clients, have a better grasp and better control over how they grow their audience and grow their business in Asia, right? So instead of coming to me and then me having the time to maybe connect you with a handful of people, what I'm doing with the platform is giving you basic information about how to reach your audience, like... Here are the top streaming platform. Here is a list of venues and you can click through to them. Here are um, the top for international content. And most importantly, here are the people that you need to get in touch with to do business with in these markets, right? And they can be service providers. So, you know, people who offer PR and marketing services, they can be managers, local managers of uh, of awesome local artists who have big reach that you could maybe collaborate with. Um, they're music lawyers on the ground. I mean, the other big need or big gap that I'm trying to fill with Gig Life Pro is creating a better infrastructure for the music industry in Asia. And by, what I mean by that is there are so many different ways in which industry functions. Like a lot of these places, you've got majors that are not the majors we know right? Not Universal, not Sony, not Warner. They're local majors. A lot of them do 360 deals. 
And if you're not part of that ecosystem, then you're in this independent gray area, right? And that's, that's the ecosystem, I feel, if we develop that and help them build that infrastructure of this is what a label does, this is what a manager does, this is what a distributor does, here's how you can do it on your own. There's a lot of incredible talent in that, that sort of like gray emerging area. What direction do you want to take Gig Life Pro in and how are you looking to further develop it? So we literally just launched our platform. <laughs> like as of yesterday, <laughs> we're starting to take, take applications for members. Um, we're super excited because it really does just allow, allow me to scale my networking as well, personally, right? Um, I've got an incredible team currently. Uh, Sarah, my COO, who's based in Melbourne, basically runs the day-to-day. She manages our two content and marketing managers, um, Hien in Vietnam and Matt in the Philippines. And I can just check in on them like once a day, basically. And all of this incredible content is now flowing. I connect them with a few people every time uh, we enter a new month. We have a new focus market that we cover. So for example, this month is Thailand. So what I did was connect them with all of my closest friends in Thailand, labels, managers, promoters, et cetera, and they run with it. Um, We also run these weekly happy hour calls where we invite eight to 10 or 12, mostly regional, but now a few international guests to jump on these calls and connect with people. This is all well and good, but I'm excited for the moment where all of this can happen on the platform itself. Like that's what we've built for people to create these sort of connections on their own, where I'm not as involved in having to facilitate it, right? We all know how to do business. We all know what we're good at. We all can tell our stories better than, than I can <laughs> tell your story. Um, it's just a matter of connecting the people to each other. The next area is is really more that educational space. So I'd love to open up um, at some point a student tier where people who are trying to learn about the music industry have content and uh, the ability to be mentored by music industry professionals and just really learn about the the various areas of of the business, which I feel like anybody working in the music industry or any artist should have a basic knowledge of how the industry works and what the different pieces are. So Jason, unless you have anything else, we can go to the speed round. So these are less questions and more like, we'll read you the headline and maybe explain the article a little bit, and then you can just react to it. So this first one, there's this article in Music Ally called Can Music Make You Sick? Measuring the Price of Musical Ambition. And basically it covers this book called um, Can Music Make You Sick? And the three sort of sections of the thesis of the book are that one, the current landscape of the music industry, especially digitally, is undermining artists' well-being just in terms of like their this feedback loop of appraisal and valuation and music production is getting less and less about actually making meaningful art. The second part of the thesis is that 
artists see contracts as a marker of status and in an industry that they feel is like defined by luck. So it's based on pre-existing power dynamics and networking. And so it all gets chalked up to luck. And then the third section is essentially that they don't have, the artists don't really have control because they're just at the whims of this sort of nebulous digital music industry. So I guess just your reaction to that thesis. Wow. I mean, that was quite, quite the multi-part thesis there. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Very interesting though. Uh, So I guess a quick reaction to that is I sort of feel the opposite. I Mm. feel like thanks to the internet, a lot of the gatekeepers that were preventing artists from aspiring to greatness are sort of bypassed, right? Where you don't need a label, you don't need a radio plugger, you don't need to hire all these people. You need to have like a really catchy tune and be really good at promoting it, self-promoting it. And that's where you're seeing a lot of these sort of quick starts, right? Like whether or not I believe in like the validity or, or the, the merit of these artists is a different story. But I feel like now more than ever, artists have control over their ability to reach and grow an audience on their own. I feel like now more than ever, artists have, have more control, actually. Mm. This next headline is, is about Brazil, but I want to relate it to more globally and especially to like Southeast Asia. It's from Music Business Worldwide. And it says multiple fake stream sites shut down in Brazil. So basically like stream farms and stream factories. And we've heard about this perception that Southeast Asia is also filled with these stream farms where streams are... Uh, manipulated, essentially. So wanted to get your take on that. I feel like click farms more, you know, social media like Facebook and and to an extent, maybe even YouTube, but definitely Facebook, Instagram. Absolutely. I feel like Spotify and others have been very good at policing that actually. As a distributor, they flag it with us when they feel like there are malicious streams happening. Um, so I don't really think of that as being a concern, but definitely a perception in Southeast Asia is that it's a good thing to hire these companies who can guarantee you playlist placements, which is essentially something similar. And it's a perception that I've been very proactively working with the streaming services to, to shut down as much as possible. All right, next one. Uh, so this one's coming from Music Allies' uh, bulletin newsletter. So this is Monster Cat goes hyper casual, quote unquote, with uh, Amanote's mobile games deal. So this is uh, electronic, mu- electronic music label Monster Cat. It's always been keen to get its music into games. Um, the latest is with Amanote's. It's a Vietnamese developer of hyper casual mobile games. Um, their biggest one is called Tiles Hop. 350 million downloads which is crazy. Um, and then planning to add uh, Monster Cat's tracks to more than 30 of its other games. Uh, the game company apparently has more than 95 million monthly active users. That's crazy. Uh, with a demographic dominated by 25 to 44-year-old women. The company also uh, partnered with uh, um, a couple K-pop labels uh, as well. So just found that interesting and, and your thoughts on that. 
That is very interesting. And congratulations to Stephen and the Monster Cat crew. Uh, Stephen is actually a very active member of Gig Life Pro, and he has been working that Vietnam market for a while now. Um, and the K-pop markets, like he recently moved out to Singapore and they're actively, you know, building up a presence here. So, so that doesn't surprise me at all. Um, he's always, they always seem to be finding cool and interesting ways to engage with, uh, the various Asian markets. Like after one of our happy hour calls, actually, he ended up using one of our Filipino artists, uh, Tarshir, who is also on the call, Inigo Pascal. Uh, in one of the Monster Cat music videos. So they're constantly, awesome. yeah, it doesn't surprise me. Awesome, awesome stuff. And I'm really interested to hear more about how how that all works out. And then we got one more here. Uh, so this one is also uh, from Music Allies Bulletin Newsletter, um, but it's referring to a variety article. So this one's China's games streaming giants Huya and Douyu to merge. So this is China's two largest games live streaming companies, Huya and Douyu. I'm sure I'm mispronouncing that. Uh, please forgive me. Uh, both of which have U.S. share listings are to merge. The deal was initiated by social media, games, and streaming giant Tencent. At the same time, it's also been agreed that Tencent will sell its own game live streaming business, Penguin Esports, for $500 million, uh, USD, I'm assuming. After the deal is completed, uh, this will enable a three-way consolidation of this sector. It's funny because like, as you started saying that, I was like, when is he going to mention Tencent? Definitely Tencent is involved with this, you know, like it's sort of like another day, another merger, another acquisition, another, another Tencent buying something, to be honest. Like, I mean, I'm really interested to see how far all of this will go and what, what will be left with in the end in terms of what the Chinese music and gaming market is going to look like and how much of it is controlled by Tencent. <laughs> Is there anything else you wanted to, I don't know, like promote or, or mention, Priya? I mean, I think it's really mm -hmm. awesome that you just basically opened up Gig Life Pro membership yesterday. I don't know if there's anything you want to kind of tag with that. Um, I mean, really, it's like if you want to engage more with the music industry in Asia, check it out, giglifepro.com. Well, it's a great mission. We'll be sure to link to it uh, in like the podcast notes and stuff like that. Awesome. Well, thanks so much, guys. It was really fun. Great questions. Thanks. How Music Charts is written and produced by Jason Hoven and Rutger Rosenborg, with additional research by Michelle Yuen. Special thanks to Priya Dewan. Free Chartmetric accounts are available at chartmetric.com, and podcast notes are at blog.chartmetric.com. You can also subscribe there for additional insights delivered to your inbox right after we publish. Follow our thoughts on our LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, all at Chartmetric. That's Chartmetric, no S. And by the way, subscribe to our YouTube channel as well. That's it. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.